everybody and welcome back to the Tea Program. Uh, today we have a fantastic guest, somebody who I've worked with uh, on, a, on a few occasions before and I had a great time. Uh, our, and of course, yes, our personal personal um, US and UK expert <laughs> on the ground <laughs> reporting on, on, on uh, everything that has to do with the whites. <laughs> I'm kidding. Um, we have Luna Oy with us today. So hey, hey Luna. Hi, uh, I'm very happy to be here. Now, please, uh, could you could you introduce? I'm sure you need no introduction. I'm sure people know you, but just in case somebody's been living under a rock, could you please let us know what you do, uh, how you got into leftism, what, what your goals are? Of course, the overthrow of Western civilization and socialism, uh, institution of socialism, all those good things. Please. <laughs> <laughs> hi, hi, everybody. I'm Luna. I have my channel Luna on YouTube. You can check me out. Uh, I'm a Vietnamese communist, born and living in Vietnam. I mostly make videos about, you know, traveling vlogs, you know, how to cook Vietnamese food. And of course, I talk politics and mostly I focus on, you know, political stuff in Vietnam. And I explain how the social system in Vietnam works and mostly it. And the point of me having my channel out here speaking English is that um, I want to give you a different perspective, you know, a perspective from a woman of color, from south from an actual country that fought against colonialism and imperialism and I want to give you some kind of different news source about my own country about our socialism it is so great to be here and to have a chance to talk to you in the show and I'm very happy that finally I'm here yes yeah uh, we're not only did we get so many um, requests to 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 get you on, but you're one of the first people we, when we first thought up of the idea of okay, we should have guests on. Um, in the first list we ever made, you're one of the first people. She's on there literally as well. the first wow. one. She's literally the first yeah. one. Yeah, she, <laughs> it's, she is. Luna, yeah, she and then is. I think somebody commented underneath that that original chat. Uh, mm. Which Luna? Luna Oi, right? And mm. uh, and somebody wrote, yeah, obviously. Mm. Which other <laughs> Luna? Like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways. So, I'm yeah. flattered. Um, uh, the the um, uh, something that's actually very nice to get is usually when we get people on, or even us us three, right? Um, we're either from capitalist countries or like post socialist countries. Some of our countries have been brutalized by imperialism. Uh, of course, we're talking about JT's uh, school experience. <laughs> <laughs> rip, literally rip. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> But yeah, um, but it you have a very unique position in that uh, you educate people in, Engl- in the English language, but you also live within a socialist country. That is the great socialist Vietnam. Um, could you please let us know how life is in the? Because <laughs> you know, you know what was that? was it? Um, Socrates that had the 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 uh, the mind uh, the the. Uh, example where you have the people who only look at the shadows, right? Uh, oh, Plato. And, and That's they the don't cave. Really know what, what's yeah, go- Plato's allegory. That was the Plato. Cave. The, cave, me. the cave Plato. Man. Yeah, the, the cave yeah, man. The, yeah, yeah the, the man of the cave. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we're basically the people in the cave. You're the one who got out <laughs> <laughs> because you actually live in a socialist country. <laughs> well, well, could, well. Could, could you please let yes. us know about that? Okay. <clears throat> what to say? Vietnam is not a utopia, of course, we have um, so many problems, but generally speaking, this is a sane country. In the sense that, like, you know, there's, the pandemic is still happening. Do not forget that. And we still, you know, um, do the social distancing and still wear masks, and we still give people free treatment, free COVID-19 treatment, and also free tests and the lockdown and all stuff like that. 
and our vaccination rate is about a hundred percent now to adult like population, and we starting you know giving vaccines to five to twelve year old children like just two days ago, I think. But but anyway, things are back to normal now. The new normal, not like normal normal, because we still do all of that stuff to protect ourselves. Um, food is extremely fresh, good, and cheap. It's just so, uh, like, usually um, EJ, my partner, he's American, right? And he said that, like, uh, he, like you don't, Luna, you don't know how good your food is in Vietnam. So I usually, when I go to a restaurant, I just expect to have a free basket of, ve- of f- fresh vegetable for free. I just expect that. Mm. Mm. And I'm like, in, in, in the countries like the USA, you just like, that is luxury. You can't, like, the the cheapest salad you would have is like $10, something that's crazy to me. But like that, and the funny thing is that like, despite many other, uh, like, capitalist countries, the solidarity between the rural areas and the urban areas in Vietnam is very strong. So, for example, last week there was a flood happened in a rural area near Da Nang City where I'm living in. They grow watermelon in those farms, and it, it was raining for a week straight, and the whole farm got flooded with tons of watermelon. So the farmers, they had to sell the watermelon really quickly or else they will all go rotten. So immediately people from the city, they send like, you know, trucks to go to those farms, take the watermelon, bring directly to the city and sell it with like cheap rice like to support the farmers. So farmers agreed to sell it cheap rice and I bought two huge watermelon high quality which is like a dollar for two wow. huge watermelon mm. like that and the money went directly to the farmer there was no capitalist involved or no business involved it's just like the people from the city heard that the farmers is having trouble so they send like trucks even the truck driver drove those for totally free that was why it was so cheap so it came to the went to the farmer the farmer so the watermelon cheap rice fast and then brought it to the city and people like me can have it. It's just like, it's a normal thing like that. Whenever, like the local government doesn't even need to involve in that, just the people. It's like, we say like Vietnamese, well, actually we are very anarchistic in our heart because we do, we usually just do it ourselves. We do not seek for like authorities for help or communists or business or capitalists for help. We, we do it by ourselves to help ourselves first. Wow. What yeah. a beautiful example of genuine class solidarity coming out both from education and so many years of, uh, of uh, existing in such a way. But would you say would you say that that, uh, that was always a part? I mean, it probably was, but to which extent do you think that was always a part of Vietnamese culture uh, versus uh, how much it became ingrained uh, uh, you know, with and after Ho Chi Minh. Yeah, the the one of the main thing, the main achievement that Ho Chi Minh did was to he tried to help Vietnamese people to not forget our history. So Ho Chi Minh was the one who, because out of 
you know, uh, more than a hundred years of colonialism under the French. They tried to to erase our culture and tried to um, force Vietnamese people to forget our history. And Ho Chi Minh and many other communists at that time was the people who who tried to make Vietnamese people to look back to our history, to you, you know, to search for our history and our culture and what did we do back then. So literally. Uh, Ho Chi Minh and many other communists, we look at our culture and our history and find out that our culture align a lot with socialism with and communism. Yes, our principle like that. That means like we, we we did have tradition. We do have a tradition of caring for each other like that. And this aligned perfectly with the principles of socialism and communism. And at the same time, the government of Vietnam today, or the local governments, they encourage people to do that. Means that the cops will also help. So, for example, another example is when um, the COVID nineteen happened really badly in two thousand twenty, and the whole country had to be in lockdown, and lots of family they couldn't, you know, they couldn't go out and buy rice, and a lot of lots of uh, poor people cannot go to work, so they cannot afford food like that. Lots of people started donating rice and the government saw that so the lo- the, lo- the local government even like let those people who donate rice to use uh, a building of the local government to like give people free, free rice and they send police there to protect and to arrange everything to make everything run smoothly like that. So it was like the attempt of the people and the local government together smoothly like that. This is very strange to people, especially from the imperial core, because the cops or the local authorities, they are just like oppress them and never help and to create like difficulties for them. But in Vietnam, we work together like that as one entity. So it's kind of really hard for lots of people to wrap their head around this idea that, wow, so I have plenty of rice and I want to donate rice to poor people, but I don't know where should I do it and how should I do it. So I contact the local government. The local government will, will give me advice, give me a location to do that and send the police to help me to run everything smoothly to make sure that my rice will reach the hand of poor people. It's like that. Wow, but no, crazy. a private institution should do it. That's how it's yeah. going to be much more efficient. The market will efficient. find it. The market the find market, it. The market's <laughs> going to take the rice and fucking give it wings mm. like every right. single piece of rice and fly it right <laughs> in through the windows of all the, <laughs> all the, the starving sick kids, yeah. and isolated people. Mm. God. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. J- JT, you want to say something? Yeah, I was just going to say that experience is so just diametrically opposed to what we alien yeah to to what we experience here in the united states during the same that same period where uh, people they knew that their fellow americans were suffering but instead of you know donating any excess materials they had like you know hand sanitizer or paper towels or or food or whatever instead they hoarded that and they attempted to scalp it for incredibly high prices um the same thing happened with like farmers who had uh, like excess milk, instead of donating the milk, they dumped it. They dumped millions of gallons of oh, milk yeah. just because there was no market for yeah. it. It's just a completely. This is the thing that I couldn't understand. This is the thing that yeah. I could not wrap my head around it. Why don't they just donate those food 
Right. Mm. It's because there's yeah. no money for it. It's so of evil. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's yeah. Our, our perspective has been entirely warped because we've been under, you know, we've been in the heart of this beast that is capitalism for so long that even, mm. you know, even people who mean well, who think they're decent people, who care about their neighbors, they're like, well, what else am I going to do? I'm, it's, there's no money for it. I'm just going to dump it. It just doesn't occur mm. to them yeah. to help their fellow human beings. And it's very sad. Material conditions? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? Yeah, honestly. Ca- yeah. Yeah, no, but capitalism, yeah, it's, it's it generates this sort of selfishness in people, mm. um, or not selfishness. It's not we don't want we don't like moral critiques usually, but uh, just so people understand the very fact that it forces people to assume profit before all else. Um, like a, an idea, for example, if hypothetically, let's assume in Vietnam this or in the Soviet Union or any other socialist country, um, something like this happened uh, where you had way too much milk, right? Instead of dumping it, but and if you couldn't bring it to market, you could at least give it to, for example, let's say school. Right, yeah. exactly. school so young school kids can get milk, for example. But instead, they want to dump it because if they were to start giving it to schools, then the regular shipments and regular uh, contracts that they have with the the state to bring milk to schools that would basically be uh, would mean less profits for them. Uh, all the, the all that milk that they would give away basically uh, would, uh, of course, ma- maintain a high enough supply that they can't, you know, try to charge a a higher price by by restricting the the, the, the production of it. For example, it's incredibly stupid and selfish. But yeah, people are shaped by their material conditions. In under capitalism, they're shaped to dump milk. Under socialism, like in Vietnam, they're shaped to um, and, and of course there has cultural aspects to this uh, yeah. too. But uh, they're shaped to. Um, Donate food and all that kind of stuff. Well, I remember something also very interesting in Vietnam, which was the the contribution of the military, which I found very interesting during COVID, yes. during the different uh, flooding. And for example, could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, so this is very funny because last year in Ho Chi Minh City, the biggest city of Vietnam, of like ten million people living that city is huge. They got really bad outbreak. There were many reasons for that, and I don't have enough time to go deep in dive deep into that. But because of the, because of that bad luck, uh, the bad breakdown, uh, the government of Vietnam had to send like military, like medics, to Ho Chi Minh City for help. And in the first few days, when we just announced that a bunch of white expats, quote unquote, three stripers. Reactionaries, they cried about it out loud. They said, like, oh, Vietnam is military rise and the military is going to oppress everybody. This is under, like, curfew, blah, blah. It's, like, so crazy. It was, I was like, what the heck are you guys talking about? They just, like, they had to help because the whole city is in the lockdown. And the army is, like, the fastest kind of force that you can like mobilize to having the like very important emergency situation like that and the military just literally went there and gave people free food and free medicine and if they need any help or go to anywhere the military will do that very quickly and the if any household they need to go to supermarket to buy food and stuff they need just send the order to the soldiers in their living areas and those soldiers will went shopping for them and brought things back to their door. It's just like literally a luxury service from the military totally for free while you sitting at home safe receiving free COVID-19 treatment, free food, free tests, all kinds of stuff like that. And of course, 
we after a few months the outbreak was controlled everything is back to uh, normal now and the military immediately went back to their bases nothing ever happened and those three stripes those expats just weirdly quiet now nobody's even talking about it it's really how ridiculous it is yeah yeah and the, th- the reason they don't understand this is because the, uh, their scheme of course is usually american or otherwise uh, where you know if you really want to know what a being living under military occupation is you can either imagine the the darling of the us the zionist the illegal zionist military occupi- occupation of, of palestine or you can take a walk down a street in detroit i mean that's yeah. right it, it it strikes me as very hypocritical for these sort of people to be like oh vietnam is a military oh the, <laughs> the military will oppress everybody meanwhile have you seen police in the us oh have yeah you, the, the, the Look at New York. I mean, the, the, that parade they yeah. had, it's just, you know, the entire street yeah. was covered. It's like ants swarming. Dude. It's, it looked like an episode from The Man in the High Castle. Yeah. It looked like a Nazi rally. Yeah. That's what it looked like. It was, it was just missing the banners, man. What the fuck? Honestly. Right? It looks like but the yeah, Dark Knight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They don't understand these people that... At the end of the day, under socialism, for example, in the United in the United States or under capitalism, the military is used. As, uh, the military is just an extension of the police. It's a use of of of, of uh, violence, uh, imposition of violent class rule. That's their primary purpose, right? Um, but under socialism, they of course are meant to protect uh, socialist power for the proletarian state. But also, um, they have a arguably secondary cause that's not so secondary. It's also one of their primary causes, which is it's you have a very large group of young able men that are a uh, fluid um, yeah. amount of basically labor that you can move around wherever you want. Exactly how you said, can be mobilized quickly. Um, for example, in, in several other countries, uh, socialist countries, the military is normally used to help farmers with their farming, for example, yes. right? They build uh, infrastructure, they build ditches and bridges, uh, and, and I did not intend for that to rhyme, but... <laughs> 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 yeah, but... Uh, yeah, they, yes, the, the ditches and bridges and everything else that, that rhymes the with... Reason, uh, such the reason... One of the main reasons why it, in the West there's a special amount of attention given to properly segregating between so-called civil servants and mm. the military is because they don't want to accidentally give more of a budget to civil service than uh-huh. the military <laughs> when it's cut <laughs> apart you know and you for example give 60 uh, 690 billion uh, to the military you know it will go to uh, M4s to tanks and to uh, rockets and planes and none of it will end up actually helping out a dude on the street or God forbid giving him a couple of hot dogs while he uh, is suffering from COVID so uh, yeah. <laughs> and that that I guess must be confusing to certain people because also in ex-socialist countries but I'm pretty sure in a large chunk of the world the military is actively used uh, for pretty much uh, anything and everything which is considered a public good in a time of crisis Mm. and not only in a time of crisis. I mean, I'm I'm 100% sure they exist in Vietnam as well, telling me if I'm wrong. But for example, military hospitals here are considered some of the best hospitals you can go to get surgery, to stay in, etc., etc. And civilians can go there. They're called military hospitals because military doctors operate there. 
uh, there's currently no war in, uh, for example, the country I live in. So uh, why should those doctors just sit on their ass? Well, in countries that are 100% profit-led, they sit on their ass because the private uh, medical sector has to get uh, the maximum bang on their buck. If they had an alternative to go to, they wouldn't. So, so yeah, the, 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 the people are just afraid of, you know, the labels or oh, military so fucking scary sounding, etc., etc. But that's, I guess, a global problem which we have caused ourselves by uh, only using the military to go blow shit up. Uh, but uh, the, the potential use of what Hakim very well said of all of these able-bodied men and women uh, uh, who are ready to serve their uh, their people. Yeah. Uh, there's so, so many better ways to utilize this massive chunk of your population than just uh, putting guns in their hands and uh, telling them either to ceremonially march, uh, or uh, which is more a case in Western Europe, or to march on uh, on the corpses of uh, of your enemies, which is more of uh, you guys' thing across the pond over in uh, the <laughs> North American. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. I had a question, actually, uh, Luna. Mm. Um, you know, like, for example, in most of the world, and this is particularly true for the, for the U.S., uh, people... I, I, if not uh, a, lo- a large group, if not a majority of people don't own their own homes or apartments or whatever, like they don't own their, their mm. shelter. Uh, and those other, the rest of them are forced to rent and they have to drop 30, 40, 50, 60, even 70% of their paycheck um, just on rent. I'm wondering, yeah. could you contrast that with what, it's, what it is in a, in a socialist country? Um, in Vietnam, 90% of our own people own our own homes. So the rate is very high like that. It, it, we still have a 10% who do not own our own homes. Most of us rent, you know. We have a very few homeless people in Vietnam. That is true. Mostly in ho- houseless people are in two big cities, Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh. And the reason why they're houseless is because they left. They have, most of them, they have a little house at their hometown but they went to the city, tried to look for a job. That was why they became houseless, like, like that. And um, like city in Da Nang, it's, it's this fun little story about homelessness in Da Nang City, where I'm living at like the third biggest city in Vietnam. Before the pandemic, sometimes I saw people slept on the street. Not many, but sometimes I saw them. But when the pandemic happened, the local government sent out a nice shop with a pen, with a banner in it saying like this is a truck to help houseless people if you are houseless or if you see any houseless people please go to us and we we we, we will help you so the truck just like go around the cd and look for houseless people for help like that so after a month and until now over 2020 two years already I haven't seen a single houseless person on the street in Dana. Mm. So mm. the good thing is that, like, well, the local government did deal with it. And the bad thing is that, like, so asshole, it, mean, it means that you can't deal with this shit the whole time, but yeah. only because of COVID-19, now finally you deal with it, you asshole, you know? So... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It doesn't mean it's like usually like make fun of local government like that. So for now, because of COVID nineteen, the local governments are trying so hard to help houseless people because if we don't, they are gonna be the people who, you know, 
usually easily to break the quarantine and spread the 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 the, the virus mm. without even knowing it. It's very dangerous for the whole city. It can destroy the whole effort of the whole city. So, yeah, after COVID, the, I see less and less people houses people on the street in Vietnam, but they are still, and that's sad part is that, and I hope that the Vietnamese government can deal with that like quickly, faster in the future. See, that's so interesting, though, because you say that, okay, the local government in, in your area could, uh, they could do it this entire time, but uh, they waited until something, right? That, that was a yes. bit, and that kind of sucks on their part, right? They should mm-hmm. have done something better. What's interesting is, for example, in most <clears throat> of, of, of the world, and again, for particularly in the United States, um, the issue is exactly the same. Uh, the homelessness issue in the United States is way bigger. You can't even compare. Yeah. Um, the, and of course, JT can can tell us endlessly about this. I have a, I have a friend, actually, who... Um, uh, who works in Miami? He, um, oh yeah, a distant relative uh, of 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 mine, and he tells me about the homelessness there. And I I actually have difficulty believing him because the way he makes it sound, like he tells me, he's like there are homeless people on every street. Yeah. I'm like every street? How is that possible? And he's like, yeah, you can't you can't go like your morning commute to work and back. You cannot go without seeing several homeless people, if not dozens in some cases, depending on where you're going. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's yeah, the case. JT, maybe you can talk. Yeah, it. It, I mean, it depends on where you live, but I mean, any big city, it's a huge problem. Like if I if I drive to Dallas or, or Austin or anywhere, um, there are you know I'll see at least I don't know a handful of homeless people, usually uh, panhandling. So they'll have a sign um, on the side of the road asking for help. Um, and you know they might have a, a, t- a tent under a bridge or something like that. But the really sick part is that instead of you know helping these people like Luna, your government did, our local government, our police forces, have been taking bulldozers and just destroying homeless mm. encampments. You know the the few possessions that these people have in this world are just being destroyed, and they're just trying to push them out of sight, not to push them somewhere better, not to help them. But just so they don't make, you know, the nice citizens uncomfortable. We don't want to see that. Mm. Out of sight, out of mind. And it's just such a different approach. It's it's so alien. And, you know, I think... It makes me sick to my stomach, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's just com- a complete lack of empathy. Completely. Uh, Luna, could you tell us about rent also? Because for those 10% of people that and, uh, rent apartments or whatnot, or homes, how, how, how much is it, would you say? Like, by uh, percentage of income? Uh, yes, my rent... Uh, uh, you know... Uh, the normal rent, like in Danang City where I'm living in, it only costs you a hundred fifty dollars to two hundred for a studio apartment, about forty fifty square meter with full furniture. So it's very affordable like that. I used to live in Hanoi, the capital city of Vietnam, for ten years, and I used to live with my roommates to rent a cute little house in an old building in Hanoi. And let me see, at that time, I only made, I made like $250 a month. And my rent plus the electricity bill plus the internet was like $50 a month like that. 50 So it was a fifth of my income Mm. in a Hanoi like that. Yeah, 20%. That's very good. Nice. Yeah, yeah, something like that. So usually rent in Vietnam is very affordable. It's not too cheap, especially in big city, but it's very affordable. And we have all kind of range for uh, people to to choose. So usually we'll spend from 15 to 25% of our income 
for rent. And for the rest of it, the food is extremely cheap. The lowest income that I ever made in Hanoi was $150. I live with that amount of money for six months, and mm. I was fine. I wow. couldn't. I could. I couldn't save money. I couldn't save money, of course. But one hundred and fifty dollars was enough for me for all of my expense at that time. Wow. I, mean, I think also an important uh, historical caveat. Sorry, uh, Yugovnik, Um But an important historical caveat also is uh, the housing stock in Vietnam isn't like the housing stock in the rest of the world, for example. At least the rest of the world that hasn't been uh, in more recently. Um, Vietnam was absolutely, completely decimated by the uh, illegal American aggression against it. Um, and as a result, after the, the revolution and after they started rebuilding, um, they literally had to rebuild everything, right? Yes. A lot of the former housing units and yes. blocks had to be rebuilt. So there is this also aspect to, to keep in, in mind. For example, as a general average, uh, most other social... Vietnam has a slightly higher average for uh, rent uh, per um, uh, by percentage of income. Uh, in, the United, in, in, the, uh, in the USSR, for example, it was between, what, 4 and 5% of your wow. monthly income was your rent. If Amazing. you even had rent, most people owned their, their uh, yes. apartments. Um, and if I remember correctly, prior to the uh, Doi Moi reforms, it was also pegged the rent, but they kind of raised it. But we'll, we'll get into all this, sorry, but yeah, <laughs> just some caveats. You open it, you want to say something? Yeah, it's very important to note that uh, home ownership rates uh, are supposed to be the one of the main selling points that uh, capitalists are trying mm. to uh, <laughs> push you on, which is, you know, private property and the sanctity of private property. And let's be honest that you will be able to buy cool shit. Well, what's more important in the category of cool shit than a pretty cool place for you to live in? And yet uh, the places with the freest of markets, the ownership rates, are some of the lowest. And that's only even that's still including the older generations that did manage to buy homes for much lower prices back in the day. The newer generations whose median income, as we all know, has not increased, and while uh, average uh, square meter prices have skyrocketed, uh, cannot even begin to imagine potentially having a home. So, you know, our podcast is called, uh, you know, the deprogram. So it's very important to note that you should be deprogrammed from the idea that capitalism will get you cool shit and that it will get you uh, the right to own more because it <laughs> might have been true at kind of the peaks of its development, which obviously no, no, uh, no lunch is free in this system, is now being paid for. So you will, uh, anything that's kind of been keeping you on the, on the fence between what makes sense for me or doesn't, uh, as you can see, a country like uh, Vietnam has a 90% uh, household home ownership rate to google what it is for your uh for your region and especially for a western audience and i'm pretty sure it's uh, gonna be half to that if not a bit over or in certain parts uh, a lot lower so uh no no the uh, the free market is not going to give you cool shit Exactly, and yeah, and it's uh, uh, the people who would even the countries that there are higher uh, rates of home ownership are usually uh, either socialist countries or former socialist countries, yeah. right? Like in the exactly. former Yugoslav yeah. countries, uh, a lot of people still own their homes. Or at North least, Korea. Yeah, I know we, I, we, or would, North I know Korea we is a hundred percent. 
Yeah, yeah. For example, yeah, DPRK has yeah very high. Cuba has ninety three percent, I believe. Yeah. Um, in the USSR now, modern day Russia, which uh, none of us really support, but the the as a heritage of the Soviet Union, um, most Russians, I believe, also own their homes still as a vestige of Soviet existence. Same in Ukraine, same in Kazakhstan. Uh, of course, like we mentioned, the Yugoslav countries, um, Czech Republic, and Hungary, and I think even Poland, um, and, and Baltic I know, countries, etc., etc. We knock the social democrats, etc., etc., but also social democratic countries that at least you know curtail some of the free market which is supposed to give you a home also have a higher ownership rate. <laughs> literally the more for i'm gonna sound like some western politician right now but the more socialisty a place is the more home ownership ratey there is so it, exactly. it's, yeah, it's, it's such a <laughs> mind fuck that that we thought that uh by just uh removing any sort of oversight over the market is going to make everybody on average wealthier. Like that was belief that was common belief up until literally like five, six years ago where everybody's now like saying not five, six years ago until the 2008, 2009 crisis. Like if you still believe this, you're in a cult. Like you you just are. (laughs) It's like, it's like the trickle down garbage. Yeah. But I was going to say also, um, if, if we're going to discuss, uh, uh, going to into, for example, employment and stuff like that. Uh, as Vietnam is a socialist country, I, I'm wondering what does employment look like? Because in most, like for example, I, I guess JT can speak about the US more uh, candidly. But from what I've seen, the vast majority of people are employed in the traditional capitalist mode of enterprise setup, where there's a boss and a, you know, and, and they have absolutely no say in what they do. They are definitely not unionized, uh, and if they if the management hears even a whiff of unionization, um, they they ban it off of the official lexicon like Amazon did. <laughs> uh-huh. but yeah, I'm wondering. I'm wondering what it looks like in Vietnam. Um, first, uh, talk about workers' unions. I had a whole video talking about that. You can check out that video on my channel. But <laughs> long story short, yes. <laughs> it's reading the law that all the working place in Vietnam must be unionized. And the workers in one business or factory or company, if there are at least five workers who want to have a workers' union, there must be a union within six months. And if the company doesn't do that, if the, and if the workers want to sue them in the court, they will lose because that's written in the law. Of course, there are still lots of uh, private business. They try to run around the law, try to find a loophole and like delay the unionization of the workers. And of course, that's against the law and we oppose to that. And if we find out, they will be severely punished. The official um, uh, statistics from the government of Vietnam is that for now we we have about 11 million union members in Vietnam. 11 million, that's a huge number. And Workers' Union, the Federation of uh, Workers' Union is one of the very powerful entities that hold the political power in the political system of Vietnam, extremely powerful like that. Um, yes, and the official goal of the government of Vietnam in the future is that 100% of the state-owned companies will be unionized, like, totally. And we also have, like, union specially for women, for wo- for women workers. And uh, up to 60 to 80% of all the private business will have unions for workers, something like that. And... Um, 
Another thing is, we have 20, over 24,000 cooperatives in Vietnam, which is run and owned by workers. About 50% of Vietnamese population works for cooperatives or self, self-employed, something like that. And the other uh, nearly 50% work for state-owned enterprise or private the sector like that. That's incredible. <laughs> Hearing that is just shocking to me because Hakeem, like you said, most people here are employed in a, you know, a quote unquote traditional manner where they're an employee, they've got a boss and they have no say in how their workplace is run. Um, I looked it up and the percentage of workers in the U.S. represented by a union is about 11 and a half percent. Um, and 40% of those are like uh, state and local government. So very, very few and people. And the mob. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. But very few people uh, in, and, and, in the U.S. Yeah. Are, are actually represented by a union in, like, typical employment. Yeah, uh, if I remember correctly, also in the U.S., some of the strongest unions are actually actually police unions. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Which is really on brand for the U.S., isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. I don't know why, but somehow, like, Americans believe that unions are bad, but... Yeah. Cops have a union. Like, if union is actually bad, why cops have it? And if it's yeah. actually that bad, why like companies or uh, corporations like Amazon spend billions of dollars mm. to try to yeah. shut it down? Mm. They're scared of it. Yeah. They're scared yeah, of unions. Yeah. I'm just saying. Like yeah. another important thing to know is that to notice that unions in the imperial core is being gutted by capitalists yeah. and they being bought, controlled by the imperialists. Yeah. And that is why lots of people lost trust in unions. And I totally yeah. understand that because the same kind of thing happened in Vietnam, you know. Unions, uh, leaders in Vietnam usually being bought by capitalists. So they easily mm-hmm. signed with the capitalists instead of the workers. But luckily, to avoid this kind of corruption, we always, mm. every area that we leave, every ward and district we leave, we're going to have so uh, like the local workers' union that work directly to the local government mm. and to the central government. So if we see that our union leaders in our company being corrupted, they didn't work for them, they, they, workers can just go directly to the local government, to the higher level of unions to report that and things will be fixed, something like that. That's incredible. Absolutely amazing. And of course, <laughs> just to add an interesting point to, 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 to what you mentioned about the uh, unions being gutted, um, even those very incredibly large unions being, like you said, controlled and, and, and um, uh, basically manipulated by the by the capitalist state, uh, the largest federation of unions, the AFL-CIO in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the U.S., played a direct hand in the undermining of, um, for example, the Maoist groups of the 60s and 70s uh, within the United States. Uh, amongst other things, right? They, they were completely co-opted. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of goes with most social movements. Um, Occupy, uh, BLM, and it, it, every pretty much every uh, social movement that takes place in the U.S. is eventually co-opted in way, way, one way or another through, uh, quote-unquote, progressive organizations. So that's also a major difference that's interesting to note. Mm, yes. Uh, regardless... Um, I think we can move on a bit and, and, and speak because, of course, like we're talking about a lot of positives about Vietnam. And we, we do this because we whenever we hear about socialism from non-socialist sources, we, it's always incredibly negative news because they want to sell you only the negative shit. It's or part Asia of the program, in general. Right? Um, like, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. yeah. We authoritarian, totalitarian yeah. dictatorship. What are you talking about? <laughs> exactly. 
And yeah, all your food yeah, is yeah, spicy. Please, okay? uh, the, 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 the hatred <laughs> of the white man towards spicy food uh, uh. roots into racism. <laughs> Has there has there ever been a school shooting in Vietnam? I don't think so. I've never I've never, never heard, heard anything of, about this. That thing doesn't happen in Vietnam. Nope, never ever. Yeah, exactly right. But we in the US, we don't hmm, shoot people here. I'm sorry, <laughs> yeah. in, in this authoritarian <laughs> exactly. state, we don't shoot people yeah. on the street. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the United States, the bastion of freedom and democracy, the leader of the free world. All right, mm-hmm. they uh, they they feel they feel feel the right to to shoot minorities uh, in the street. And their you know, second, the way, and their sorry, second sorry. most civilized one, the UK, they stab each other. At least they don't shoot each other. You know, <laughs> you have the stab- freedom to shoot and stab on the street. Yeah, exactly. That's what you have. <laughs> you know, by the way, I love Just I love um, what's it called. You know, do you know liberals in the U.S. and oh, fuck, like the, the, my hatred for liberals is unending. But uh, when whenever an, another minority gets shot in the U.S., for example, um, these liberals will come out and be like, "Oh, no judge, no jury. He was just shot without a trial." And I'm like, "Wait, so if he if there was a trial, it would, it would make it okay to be yeah. to shoot him like for sport on the street?" <laughs> like, whatever yeah, we're um, talking about the most free country in the world of course give me some respect yeah, yeah, here you guys you <laughs> yeah, have freedom to right. die the houselessness and malnutrition yeah yeah exactly you have the freedom to go abroad and kill brown people in hopes of returning home to be able to afford a university education uh, yeah. your degree that's a that's complete free by the way education in vietnam is it free again hmm, i wonder it's not free, but it's extremely affordable. So, uh, for example, it's our system is very different, I think. Because we have two kind of system in Vietnam. We have a private sector and public sector. The public was uh, the, the, the original kind that we've been having it for so long now. is extremely affordable. It's just so cheap that, like, I don't even... I don't even remember... Like, for example, university in Vietnam. I study in a business university, one of the top 10 best universities in Vietnam, studying business. And it cost me um, 150 US dollars a month, about 3 million VND for everything. And my for the whole semester, the fee was $200, less than that. So ex- extremely affordable like that. And now, for now, because we have, you know, the our socialist-oriented market economy, so since then we had private sector, mostly for higher-income people, so they can send their kids to their school with higher fee. And uh, the thing is that, like, in every... It is how it work, education system works in Vietnam. In every area... There's gonna be public schools for all the kids to go there to so say every kid has right to go to schools with lower fees like that. At the same time, the public sector we also have a gifted school for you know talented students or something like that. So I actually did study. I study in normal kindergarten, a normal public primary school, and then I joined the gifted. Uh, Secondary school and gifted high school, totally both public sector is super cheap and lots of um, scholarship up there. And people who, um, you know, who want, you know, like rich, rich asshole family, something like that, they want their kids to study in like awesome school, private, extremely high quality, blah, blah, blah. 
yes, they can go to private schools, pay like double, triple price to receive high education like that. Because in order to receive that kind of high education from normal student in Vietnam, you need to pass an exam to go to gifted schools. So that's how it works. So those rich family, the kids who cannot pass the exam but still want the same kind of quality, they will go to private sector. Uh-huh, okay. That's very interesting. Very interesting. Good to know. But that's actually something uh, that, that ties well into to, uh, uh, like a related topic, which is um, the reason that we're speaking positively about Vietnam is because you usually hear very negative things about Vietnam or socialist countries in general. But like every country on earth or every system, there's like positives and negatives. And this can be considered to be one of the, um, in, in a way, it could be considered to be a negative. But in other ways, it depends on you know your perspective on it. But yeah. um, uh, could you give us more examples of, of what you consider to be uh, like the sort of difficulties or, or um yeah yeah sure. draw, uh, not drugs you, you understand you understand what i mean yeah yeah sure the hey the biggest problem in vietnam right now is real at stake price because in mm-hmm. 2008 to 2015 because you know 2007 2008 there was great depression in the usa and it did affect vietnam and at that time, Vietnam trying so hard to fix this and to get out of this kind of depression. So the government uh, uh, is in the simple term. They redirected the money, the currency flow to try to, to help the economy like that. And it was used. The capitalists made use of that. And they turned those currency flow into, they pumped those money into real estate. So that was why from 2008, 2010 until now, we we are having real estate bubble in Vietnam. Lots of people just like, just they just bought a piece of land and uh, after a few months, they didn't do anything on that land. After a few months, they sold it to somebody with way higher price like that. And that was how the real estate bubble got created and Vietnam is bearing the consequence now. That is, it is harder and harder for Vietnamese citizens to own our land and own our house. And if if we let this continue to happen the same way without doing anything to stop it, the house ownership in Vietnam is going to be lower and lower in the future. And that is why, luckily, that I saw that the, lower ga- uh, the, the central government, the National Assembly in Vietnam, have been talking about this a lot. And they had, like, meetings to talk about this. And now I can see that... Like now we are cracking down on corruption really bad. Nearly like every week there's going to be news about this CEO, this billionaire, this governor, this ministers go to jail because of corruption related to, most of them related to like real estate. And we can see that because I study business, so I can see that through many channels, the government is trying so hard to redirect, to take the money out of the real estate sector and trying to like lower the price of the real estate. And we also building millions of cheap houses for workers in all big cities, even now, even in Da Nang too. And I can tell like, so for example, I was looking for an apartment to rent in Da Nang a while ago. And I came to, I came to both like normal real estate apartment and it costs like, the price to buy an apartment, normal apartment, was like $70,000. It's high. It's extremely high compared to the Vietnam 
miss kind of living costs like that. But I also went to the building, especially for building for low income workers. And the building, the whole room, like bigger room like that, same quality, it only costs $35,000. This is really half price of the normal private apartment like that. So I do think I do see that the, local gov- the, the, the central government of Vietnam is working very hard to make cheap uh, houses, apartments for low-income people and also trying to arrest all the big capitalists and governors, corrupted ministers to, like, you know, to try to fix this problem. Hopefully in the next few years we can see some change in this because the real estate price in Vietnam is still getting higher and higher now. Yeah, we're facing a, a similar problem here in the states, and I mean, we here in the states we love to inflate our real estate prices, and we're we're um, we're headed for a, a burst of the bubble pretty soon, I imagine. I'll be curious <sighs> to see yeah. just how how widespread that'll be because it'll absolutely wreck the U.S. Uh, working class, like it did the last time this happened. But I'm curious to see how it'll affect the rest of the world. I'm, I'm hoping it's yeah. fairly contained to the U.S. this time, but I don't think it will be. Oh, another bad problem in Vietnam is liberalism because, Hakim, you talk about this, you mentioned this. Liberalism is infecting young people of Vietnam. On one hand, we do have a lot, I mean a lot, of young communists and socialists. But on the other hand, yes, there are so many Vietnamese who are being infected with liberalism because they, you know, they believe in the propaganda from the imperial core. Yes, they watch tons of Hollywood movies, reading like English newspapers, listen to three strivers, Vietnamese reactionaries, diaspora, something like that. They believe in all that shit. Even now, young people in Vietnam still believe that like, the USA is the most free country in the world. It's the good force of the world. And it's not absolutely crazy living in the U.S. right now with all the mass shooting, the COVID pandemic. Luckily, luckily, after this pandemic happened, it's still happening, but uh, because of the pandemic and lots of people, lots of young people kind of, open their eyes about what's actually going on in the imperial core. And lots of them like, oh, holy shit, I couldn't think that that could happen. So the pandemic is absolutely bad, no doubt about it. But in Vietnam, it does some bleed of good thing is that it showed a bunch of Vietnamese liberals the true fix of capitalism, the true fix of the imperial core. And I hope that it will keep getting this way and with this with this what's going on with Ukraine, Russia and NATO, something like that, it opened the eyes of lots of, you know, Vietnamese liberals too. Just look at, at how like the US and NATO been treating the situation and how they've been using this to manipulate the narrative of the whole world, you know. But yeah, long story short, liberalism is also a problem in Vietnam. And you know what's interesting is when in, in these socialist countries, uh, both former socialist and current socialist countries, the liberals and free marketeers, they have a fundamental misunderstanding of what the capitalist experience is because they assume that if they were to become more capitalist, to introduce more market reforms, to become more like the United States or whatever, they think that they can keep 
all the guarantees of the current social system, but yes. also get all the benefits of what, for example, the United States has. This yes. was the primary fallacy of the Poles and the Czechs and even the, the, the Russians, um, because they thought, hey, we can still own our property, we can still, uh, like our, our homes, we can still have guaranteed employment, we can still have um, uh, pegged prices or, or um, what's it called? Um, standardized prices and uh, for, for for basic goods we can still have free education everything can still be guaranteed i can still be in a union and have my uh, say in my workplace but also we can have extensive consumer products and uh, you know all the other kind of stuff uh, but then they realized after the transition oh no it means like uh, a complete immigration for the vast majority of people and uh, the consolidation of massive amounts of wealth in a very small ha- a small uh, group of of, of uh, people who got th- got their wealth through through robbing and and uh, yeah. uh, and threats and murder and so it's a perfect so so. situation for the liberal because once the reforms the capitalist reforms obviously uh, start rolling in and positive results do not appear uh, they just throw out the argument that it will take a lot of time to decommunize uh, this specific uh. country. And they use that as an argument to do even more radical market reforms. So it's uh, like every episode I say it, so I'll say it now. It's a snake that eats its own ass. The argument just rolls and rolls and rolls, and you end up having... Uh, states uh, which were formerly uh, socialist experiments, which are today, one could say, uh, you know, absolute dystopias of uh, the market pretty much running uh, everything and where regulations which do exist only exist as a formality. And you can go to these countries and talk to liberals and even now 32 years later 32 to 33 after the the end of uh, you know uh, the socialist experiment in my part of the world you will still hear them say no I mean we're still not like the German we don't have the standards like the Germans or the French have because it's a consequence of what the fucked up communists had did uh, 32 years ago and they'll probably use this argument for the next 100 150 years because it's just so fucking convenient and people eat it up like uh, morning soup. The very first video I ever made was uh, a case study of capitalism I called it where I compared uh, Soviet Ukraine to uh, modern capitalist Ukraine. This was in 20... uh, 17, I think, or something like that. The, the, I, I made the video. And uh, I remember I would read through these articles and they would uh, try to justify the horrible um, track record of the Ukrainian economy, the capitalist Ukrainian economy, uh, and their ab- abysmal performance by saying, oh, it's a post-Soviet hangover. They're oh still recovering gosh. from the Soviet. And yeah, it's like it's been over 20 years. Uh, after The Soviet Union was fo- founded in 21, right? The revolution happened in, in, in 17. The Soviet Union was founded in 1921. In 1941, so 20 years later, the Soviet Union was basically a superpower, had basically re-superpower status. If we're to extend the timeline a bit longer yeah. to 30 years, it starts sending probes, probes into space, it developed nuclear power, etc., etc. It became, like, the amount of uh, the achievement is, um, uh, like, it's unbelievable what they managed to achieve. Meanwhile, Ukraine, which is 
had every benefit. They had no sanctions, no diplomatic vilification, no foreign uh, like meddling for the most part, at least not nowhere near to the same scale that the Soviet Union had, and nothing has come of the capitalist reforms. Same for Russia, same for Kazakhstan, same for Poland and Hungary, yeah. and the, the Baltic countries for every post-Soviet country uh, or post-socialist country. They didn't benefit from these capitalist reforms. But it's a very, very interesting discussion, actually. Yeah, sure. Um, if, you have a, if, you, if you have the energy, <laughs> um, Luna, could you give a like a very preliminary introduction to the Vietnamese um, experience because Vietnam's history is very interesting. You went from mm. uh, being <laughs> fucked with by everybody, literally everybody, uh, <laughs> into becoming an independent so into becoming an independent socialist country over a very short span of time, actually. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, could you just kind of give a preliminary, maybe in through your personal stories, perhaps? Sure, sure. Um, I am very proud of the history of Vietnam, and I have to say it's very interesting, not just because I'm Vietnamese, yes. but generally speaking, it's very interesting. So Vietnam was a country that, I don't know, Vietnamese people have been living here for over 4,000 years. And we have we had our own government 4,000 years ago, since 4,000 years ago. And all the way until, oh, this is a kind of a, an ancient history of Vietnam that most people do not know about or have any kind of English news source talking about this. In the official history of Vietnam, from the year 4000 to the year 2000, Vietnam had a very peaceful and successful kind of government. And I do believe that it sounds exactly like anarcho-syndicalist, in a sense that at that time, there were about 15 original tribes of Viet people. We, we call ourselves Viet people with 15 ancient tribes. And to live peacefully together like that and to run the whole society like that, and we voted, you know, we chose the most powerful tribe with like most people, most produce most food and strong people, something like that, I don't know exactly, but we chose, we democratically chose the strongest tribe to be the leader of the whole f the federation of 15 tribes. And after like, I don't know, Every few decades, and if another tribe rose up in the peaceful way, I mean, like they they uh, develop to be more powerful than the leading tribe, everybody just gonna vote for the new tribe like that. It's like peaceful like that. It was like there was no evidence or no document, not even folk stories about we had any kind of conflicts back then. The fifteen tribe just live peacefully with each other like that, and the strongest tribe will lead the feder federation. That kind of government stopped in the year 2000 because uh, Chinese kings at that time from the north conquered, went south and conquered Vietnam, and we were under the, you know, the control and occupation of all kind of Chinese king for a thousand years. And because of that, we lost a lot of writing. You know, we had our own writing system, but now we lost it because all the document was destroyed and burned and buried and they tried to erase our culture like that. So about a year, the 10th century, we, a year, year, a thousand, something like that, one of the Vietnamese guys rose up and had successful, like, kick out the Chinese out of Vietnam. And since then, we had our own independence and freedom all the way through 18th, 19th century. Vietnam was conquered 
by French colonialists in the early 19th century, and they they colonized us for over a hundred years. And the fucked up thing is this: the reason why they conquer Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, Indochina, quote unquote, was because of the Michelin Tire Company in Europe. At that time, because the car industry just like you know blossomed, and everybody, all the capitalists wanted to make cars, and that was why they needed rubber to make tires for their cars. They cannot grow rubber trees in Europe, so that was why they went to Indochina, Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia because we had like perfect soil to grow that rubber trees. They colonized the shit out of us, and they had like plantation all over Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, and forced millions of Vietnamese people into literally slavery like that. Shortly after they successfully conquer and colonize us, they found out about synthesized rubble. You know, so they don't even need. They didn't even need us anymore, but they still. Even though they at the time they have synthetic rubber already, they don't need to grow rubber trees anymore. They still kept Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, and because it was so extremely profitable for them to exploit the shit out of our people. Right around the same time, though, World War One happened, and then World War Two happened. So French, they lost. A lot of money and resources during those two world wars. That was why they wanted to exploit Vietnam even more, and they never want to give freedom to Vietnam at all because it was so beneficial. Uh, they, 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 we gave them, we gave them a lot of benefits from colonialism like that, and that was why up until 1945. After the World War Two happened, and at that time Vietnam was occupied by fascist Japan, the French soldiers at that time they came back to Vietnam, and they were supposed to demilitarize, de-weaponize fascist Japan. You know, kick Japan out of Vietnam so they can maintain the power in Vietnam. But in fact. The colonialist French and fascist Japanese they worked together to exploit Vietnamese even more, and that was why from 1940 to 1945 there were two millions of Vietnamese died of starvation at that time because they took everything they could. Both country, both Japan and France, they took everything they could back to their hometown to make up for their losses. In the World War Two, and we we were left nothing to live on. All four of my grandpa and grandma lived through this time, and they all had to go through severe famine. They barely survived. It was so bad that when my uh, grandma died a few years ago, and we um, we do we did cremation for her. Even though we wanted to keep the bones, you know, because that's tradition in Vietnam, that we want to keep the bones to bury in the family's graveyard. All of her bones turns into like dust because, like, she, like she had to go through that severe famine. So she, like, her bones were so weak and barely anything left. And we were like the whole family, like, cried so hard when he saw that, you know, because 
of the stuff that she had to endure. But long story short, Ho Chi Minh at that time, um, he successfully had a successful communist revolution in August 1945. And Vietnam officially gained our independence since 1945. Right after that, um, uh, French colonialists decided to go back to Vietnam. They still wanted to keep Vietnam so badly. So that was why we spent the next nine years fighting against French colonialism up until 1954 when we had Diet Bien Phu uh, victory. And we totally officially kicked out the French at that time. Mm-hmm. Not finished yet. Good. <laughs> <laughs> the USA, the USA. At first, they signed it with the French, but when they they even offer the USA offer nukes to French in 1950s, 1952, or something like that, to nuke Vietnam because you know they wanted French to win the Vietnam War, the war in Vietnam, like that. And the French they refused it, and the reason why they refused the nukes offered by the USA was that the French soldiers and the Vietnamese, the Viet Minh soldiers were located too close to each other. So if they nuke Viet Minh, uh, hundreds of thousands of their soldiers also die. So that was why they uh, refused it. It was not because they care about us. It was that oh, they didn't want to kill their own people. And that was it. So after the French lost, the, the USA immediately jumped in with the Geneva Agreement and they said a fascist dictator in the south of Vietnam. His name was Ngo Ding Diem. He was a Catholic, and he used to work for the king in Vietnam in 1930 and 1940s. And he went to USA to seek for help, and the USA chose him to be the dictator. He literally, this is literally not even an, an example, or an, an, like an exaggeration or something. That fascist dictator, he dragged a guillotine. The guillotine left by the colonialist French. He used the guillotine, dragged the guillotine all over the south of Vietnam and executed everyone that he expected to be communist without trial. He killed so many people that we could not even keep track of how many people died because of that like guillotine. We can we uh, we we estimated it was from two thousand up to twenty six thousand people died because Jeez. of that. He was a fascist. At the same time he wanted to push um to 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 to, to, to make Christianity become the official religion in the south of Vietnam under his government. So he like oppressed and executed Buddhists in the south of Vietnam. You know, the Buddhism is very powerful and strong in Vietnam, and he tried to execute that. Just go Google, and you will see like hundreds of pictures of thousands of Buddhists in the south like protested against the oppression from the fascist government of Vietnam. And there was a, a famous uh, Buddhist. His name was Thich Quang Đức. He burned himself in front yeah. of the U.S. embassy or something like that in government to to try to call for attention and try to oppose to that kind of oppression. It was terrible like that. So, uh, yes, so under that help, Vietnam, the Viet Minh, the NLF, the National Liberation Front, had to fight against it. And my grandpa, father of my father, he joined the Viet Minh soldiers in the early 1960s. And he... 
died in Tet Offensive in the south of Vietnam in 1968. It's, it's a big part of our family. Oh, another important story is that my other grandpa helped in the Dien Bien Phu victory in 1954 fighting against the French. He, he volunteered to carry rice from my hometown, Thanh Hoa, to Dien Bien Phu up in the north. And he had to walk for like a month to get there, just walk and carry bicycle full of rice like that. I am very proud of my the history of my family because literally my the two of my grandpa joined the two biggest resistance wars of Vietnam first against the French and second against the imperialist USA and then my dad continued to be a very awesome tanky quote unquote he <laughs> went to the USSR <laughs> for three years to study in from 1976 to 1978. And then he came back and he went to live and work in Laos for 10 years to build roads for Laosian comrades totally for free. It was like a non-obligation aid from Vietnam to Laos. And he, my dad literally built like highway connecting Vietnam and Laos for 10 years like that. So, yeah, that's my story. And it's a beautiful one. I just wanted to add one one short thing. Um, what's interesting, because you mentioned that your dad studied uh, up until 1978. Uh, an interesting uh, note that we mentioned uh, when we collabed before is yeah. my dad also studied in the Soviet Union. Uh, yes. And he studied between 1976 and 1980, 1981. Mm. Um, and I remember my dad used to tell me about like the different... Um, uh, students from all over the world that he met, uh, and he mentioned specifically a, a Vietnamese delegation at one point. So it's there is a possibility that my dad and Luna's dad have met yes. in the Soviet Union at some point. That's so cool. So that's a yeah, that's a that's very interesting. But yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah thank so you, thank awesome you for that. To, 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 to hear that part of you. Yeah, I was so surprised, so happy to learn that your dad mm. was in. Yeah. The USSR at the exact same time. And, I, and that's why it's, of course, the internationalism of the socialist project is so important because um, if you compare it to the internationalism of, uh, the quasi-internationalism of what the West does, for example, or at least the United States uh, in, in North and, and South America with the Organization of American States, um, where they just bring all the torturers that they can find and put them in one place and teach them basically the best ways to torture. That's that's their internationalism. Meanwhile, uh, the Cuban international or Soviet or Vietnamese international, uh, internationalism is training medical personnel, training yeah. people in uh, different sorts of uh, industry, usually for free, if not for, you know, uh, parts of solidarity, um, uh, treaties between countries, etc., etc. It's a very different attitude towards the relationship between countries. It's a relationship between working people, not a relationship between the ruling classes of said countries. And that's something very interesting to note. Yeah, it is very beautiful. Yeah. Internationalism between socialist countries is beautiful. I can give you some example for it. So, for example... Vietnam, we have the best, best relationships with two countries. First is Cuba and second is Laos, like best friend whatsoever, something like that. Um, first to Cuba, 
because I was born under the U.S. sanctions in the 1990s, and at that time, we did not have any medicine. Kind of, it just had like basic medicine such as like some antibiotics and vitamins, and that was it. There was virtually no vaccines whatsoever, something like that. Cuba at that time was the only one country that donated vaccines to Vietnam. So literally, I was saved by Cuban vaccines. I could have died without Cuban vaccines, you know. At the same time, that was how Cuba always been always helping us. Like they gave us medicine, vaccines, and the formula to make vaccines like that. It's really awesome. Um, to like you know to pay them back, the Vietnamese government we gave Cuba the technology to grow rice because you know Vietnam is the second biggest country in the world in exporting rice only after India. It's amazing we like a huge rice exporter in the world. We have we have really good like technology to grow our rice, so we gave. That technology to Cuban comrades to hope that they can have a food security in their country, and it's really it's like been very successful in Cuba right right now, and help Cuba a lot with the food security. At the same time, Vietnam also help Venezuela. We develop a a a, a kind of rice we call it like Vive from Vive five to Vive nine something that we develop. That's a special breed of rice that is for. Venezuela only because we send like the best farmers, you know, to 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 Venezuela and study their water, their soil, their weather, and we came back home and we had like made the kind of breed specially for Venezuela like that. Hopefully, to help Venezuela with um, food security too. About Laos, we also because Laos is a landlocked country. And we gave Laos one of our deep sea port. So, like mm. in my video about the relationship between Laos and Vietnam, you'll learn more about it. But literally, we are, we are building a chain directly from Laos through Vietnam, go to that deep sea port, and Laos actually owns sixty percent of that port, and Vietnam only owns forty percent. So Laos has a control of that deep sea port, and yeah, that is how we do it. Like we just we we give. Each other like free stuff like that, like medicine, formula to make medicine and vaccines. We gave people like technology to grow rice, and we gave the control of our deep sea port literally on our land to our comrades to use like that. It's like it's very beautiful in the sense that there's no money involved, it's just purely from trust. We trust each other, and we just want the best for each other like that. And that's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of of, of socialist internationalism. And uh, in a very small uh, microcosm of that is, is something we're trying to replicate with this podcast. But in no way can this even relate. <laughs> we don't have any deep sea ports, sadly, that we can that we can uh, lend out. But hopefully, we can bring in voices um, from from the imperial periphery uh, and so and and. Um, uh, amplify them so that people from particularly the the imperial core in the western countries but all over the world could 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 uh, yeah. hear these perspectives usually that they're not allowed in their in their very free media by the way um, <laughs> that never mentions these things yeah. uh, <laughs> but yeah. uh, I think uh, we have like we, we can cover one more thing that I thought would be a bit fun um, 
there's this thing that I personally find it funny, but uh, the same United States that absolutely decimated Vietnam uh, in their uh, uh, horrendous and frankly evil war uh, against the Vietnamese people, um, those same veterans, they've started to reach old age and they start, their bodies have started to break down and they can't afford their health care in the United States. So they've somehow found their way back to those countries, so the same country that they were bombing like 50, 60 years ago. Yes. Uh, and uh, they're, they're seeking health care in, 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 in Vietnam. I'm just wondering, what do you think about these people? Um, I mean, it's pretty funny, I gotta say, seeing those pilots, soldiers that used to bomb our country to Stone Age now come back to our country and try to seek a better life here. So it means that their country sucks, you know? The imperial court yeah, sucks. That yeah. was why they had to leave and they found, like, a right society in Vietnam. It's not perfect, but it's definitely better than their own home country. Another thing is that, like, lots of people have been attacking Vietnam for accepting those people, you know? And I think that this is very um, kind of problematic kind of narrative. Because first, Vietnamese people, we do not hold any grudge against American people. We do not. We will never forget our history, definitely, but we'll forgive. Okay, so it is fine as long as the USA still uh, want to be friend with Vietnam. The USA do not. If, if the USA does not attack Vietnam, everything is going to be fine. So we welcome foreigners to go Vietnam to see the life here. And if they think that they can't do it, go stay here. And we welcome them. We, we, we are not an ethno state. <laughs> Believe it or not, we are not an yeah. ethno state. We do <laughs> not kick white people, non-Vietnamese out of Vietnam. We don't, we welcome you actually. But the difference is that like, and a lot of people criticizing Vietnam for like, oh, why do you allow these people? So what's the point of fighting against the U.S. imperialism in the first place, by the way? It is, they, it is very ugly and disgusting kind of perspective because, as I said, Vietnam is not an ethno state and we never want to be like that. Secondly, we fought against it so we can have our self-determination. Names are not animals. Alexa, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Alexa is so weird. Oh, no. Alexa, stop. Mm. This is the woman that we are not allowed to name her name because she would just speak like that. Anyway, the whole point of, fight- <laughs> the whole point of Vietnam fighting against U.S. imperialisms it was so that we can have our self-determination. What does that mean? It means that we control our own country. We are the masters of our own destiny. That is the most important thing. Now, those uh, American like retire men, retire people, they go to Vietnam, but they have to follow our laws and live in our terms. They have to respect our people and our culture, and we have the right to kick them out if they violate any one of those. That is very different. Like, yes, it's the same that white people also come to Vietnam to start their life here, but it's totally different from, you know, colonialists went to Vietnam and built plantation. Yeah, it's totally different. And we you need to 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 distinguish these two different things like that. And this is a good thing that Americans started seeing the two faces of capitalism and seeing how sh- a shithole the country is and they 
looking for another country to spend the rest of their life in that society. And it's also a good thing for the economy of Vietnam because usually those people they brought shitload of dollars and spend it on Vietnam, and that is a good thing. Yeah, mutually beneficial at least to 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 some extent, right? Yeah. But the the hypocrisy of them, of course, just like you said, uh, coming and then realizing, yeah, it means that their countries are shit. That their capitalist uh, um, uh, systems of, of of organization and governance that they killed people to to yeah. to protect, basically and defend, yeah. uh, have uh, betrayed them. And then, but they don't have enough, I guess. Um, uh, I don't know what the term is in English, but they're not cognizant of that 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 disconnect, right? Yeah. That they're coming to the same yeah. system and nation that they tried to destroy for a shortage of their own system, right? And instead of adjusting their politics, these people still probably vote the same way they voted before. They still probably are pro markets and pro capitalist system. But uh, you know, um, yeah, it's, you're it's, right, it's, Hakim. It's, uh, yes, this is a huge problem in Vietnam that we have so many. White immigrant in Vietnam that literally enjoying the life here, benefits from our socialism, but still dunk on socialism and our own people. I had mm. to deal with those people nearly every single day online. That was why I changed my name to Dr. Luna, or the US UK expert, because those people <laughs> they claim to be expert about Vietnam, about Vietnamese people, without even speaking our own language. At least I'm yeah, speaking their yeah, own language yeah. now, right? I mean, it's okay if they do not speak our language, but do not claim to be expert. I'm so mm, I hate those people. <laughs> I have yeah, I have no, black I'm friends. I'm an expert of on African American culture. <laughs> it's literally <laughs> the meme that pops up in my head every time I I listen to these people. I mean, recently they started engaging in a bit of race science i don't know if you guys noticed when it comes to talking <laughs> about russians but yeah they, 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 it's a grift and they jump on the grift i'm not saying that there is no such a thing as an expert but uh it, i've always found it at the very least you need to speak weird. language yeah or or <laughs> yeah. have lived there or uh, i i mean what when we really think about it like what criteria to me like being an expert on a part of the world is iffy in general because it implies that you can't really talk to the locals but you need an <laughs> educated westerner to tell you what they're like you can't yeah, ask yeah, them basically. what they're like and what they think it's it internalizes a bit of uh, spicy spicy uh, racism and uh, chauvinism yeah i'd love i'd love to see the inverse imagine just like yeah like uh Uh, a Cuban or Vietnamese America expert, right? And they go <laughs> yeah, and right. like, "Well, you know, Americans, uh, they have different. They have an individualist approach to violence, right? They're uh, they're they're built different. <laughs> Their prefrontal cortex is not as developed, and as a result, that's basically yeah. what the, the other side does, right? That's But, what it sounds like um, to us, but literally, right? Luna Hakim, uh, sorry, JT, you, there's not a lot of viewers, <laughs> but that's what it feels like. And and, and you're from yeah. a specific part of the world, and you're sitting and you're listening to these people tell you." you what it's like to be you and then yeah. you tell them yeah. you know, what are you talking about and they get angry at you and they tell yeah. you you're brainwashed yeah. or you're like listening to yes. too much propaganda I'm or a uh, I've said to them like what mm, what the, mm. what are they talking about literally I got I had white expert on Vietnam explained about my own country to my face For example, there was a guy. I don't want to name any names because I don't want to accidentally uh, PR for that douche. 
but he claimed to be an expert in Vietnam. Of course, he uh, studied uh, as O A S school in the U K. Very sus. Anyway, he wrote a book about the labor organization. You know, labor union in Vietnam, something like that. He wrote a book about it, and he said this to my face. He told me that there is no. Cooperatives in Vietnam. While literally, my mom is a member of agriculture cooperative in her own village, and there is an official website of cooperative in Vietnam where, like, all the steps for you to start a co-op in Vietnam. He wrote a book about us, about our labor organization. He and he told me there is no co-op. And I was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" And I. You know, I pointed those links to him, and you know what about? And a few things happened between me and that douche too. And one day, he accidentally, quote unquote, deleted all the old tweets of him. He just cleaned his <laughs> whole timeline. It was like, all right, so that is expert. And you're right, you got me. This is racism because. White people, no Westerners, people from the Imperial Court, always prefer the white voice. That is why, that is why they always listen to those white experts on non-white country. And when people like me, you know, like Hakim, like Yugopnik, speak up about our own experience, our life experience, our own countries, they like accuse us of being brainwashed or like yeah, you propaganda. Propaganda, yeah, it's spreading propaganda. Meanwhile, those white experts—they are the true voice of the oppressed people. Beautifully put, Luna. Yeah. Beautifully put. Absolutely, absolutely. I love, I love this podcast so much because not only is it like a dream job, but it's also such a good place to <laughs> vent with uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, beautifully like-minded people. So I, you know, I end up uh, tomorrow's Monday. I have work and it's going to be a perfect way to start it. Um, and then back on Friday, I'm going to be as angry as, as on Monday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's there's this, um, what's it called? There's, uh, in, in uh, I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who's uh, in psychology and he was telling me about this this concept but was he, of... But um, was he white? Because if he wasn't, he read propaganda no. about no. psychology. <laughs> nah, that no, guy, yeah, of course, that's yeah, a, yeah, propo- yeah. That's no, a no. psychology propagandist. He does not know. We need yeah, to put yeah, out. <laughs> yeah, sorry, yeah, go on. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, no, no, there's a state, there, 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 there's a, uh, the, the party line that he was uh, parroting to me, of course. <laughs> yeah, I feel uh, but no. he, he, The frontal cortex. He, he like, he li- yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, yeah, he's, you know, he's very complex. It was, he was, it was, it was two, two millimeters too thin, so... Um, but yeah, uh, he, he was dulcicephalic in his facial structure. Um, he likes peppers slightly too much. Uh, <laughs> he was telling me about different. He was telling me about like um, the concept of stressors in psychology, and he was saying, um, uh, in for example, let's say in the United States or other countries where you're a minority, right? You can face something called minority stress, um, which is basically uh, you can almost think of it as microaggressions, where you know every day, every part of the day, you get these small things that just uh, other you in a, in a way. Uh, and then make you feel as if, yeah, like remind you of, 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 oh, you don't belong here or some some negative thing uh, in regards to you being a minority. And colonial stress is something very similar. I, uh, Fanon spoke about this a bit as well, in which you're 
as as a person who is colonized or formerly colonized, there's always in a roundabout way this constant reminder that you're you're always a colonial subject. Uh, even though now in the era of independence, it's still this is a perfect example that you yourself cannot speak as an expert on your country, but a white guy who's never been and barely speaks the language, if at all, can speak very confidently about your language, and he'll be he'll be invited to the White House and to the UN, and he'll be invited to uh, yes. you know official like think tanks to talk about your country, despite the fact that this cunt doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> that's another example of, of, of colonial stressors. But yeah, that, that, that's, just, I think, something to, to, to um, uh, add on to that. It's really ridiculous. You're completely right. Yes. Um, uh, Anglos are, 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 uh, were a mistake. I think that's... Uh, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting because um, speaking as the, you know, the white guy here, uh, YouTube <laughs> is, is a prime example of this. Like, it's... Uh, most people, if you look around at this very successful channels or, you know, quote unquote successful, the ones that have a large following, it's always, you know, you know exactly what voice you're going to hear when you click yes. on the thumbnail. It's There's going to be it's yes. a flat Fucking American crack. accent. Yeah, exactly. It's it's some white dude that sounds like me where it's, a, you know, quote unquote professional presentation where there's, you know, very Maybe little recognizable speaker, no accent. accent quote exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and for whatever reason. I mean, there's plenty of baggage that comes with this, but the, people assume that if you're a if you're listening to a quote unquote well spoken, flat accented American white male voice, that is a voice of authority, and anything that deviates from that is somehow not as professional or not as well versed in whatever they're talking about. As absurd an assumption as that is, yeah. My partner that is, so is also white important. American. Non-binary, but he represents as a dude. So I usually tell him like, "EJ, you're my tactical white dude." <laughs> yeah, JT, he's a tactical white guy. Yeah, JT, he's you're also tactical our white tactical white dude here. <laughs> oh ready for duty. <laughs> uh, ready for duty. Oh, I love it. You need oh, me to talk to to a white lady? I'm here to help. <laughs> pay him in mayonnaise. You're gonna be the guy if and when uh, Yugopnik and I visit the U.S. You're gonna be the guy that s- speaks to the cops if anything were to happen. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm the delegation to the suburbs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can, you can oh, just blame God. that the car smells like booze to the to the Slav, and uh, yeah, we make sure that they don't <laughs> see Hakim. That, that's, that's like, like yeah, you keep me in the trunk. <laughs> it's like the day. gonna look at me. It's like he's. It's the Dave Chappelle skit where he's like, I'm sorry, officer, I didn't know I couldn't do that. I didn't know I couldn't do that. (laughs) You you have to keep me the truck, and then the cop will be like, hey, I heard something in your truck. He pops the truck, he's like, hey, it's it's a Latino. It's a Hispanic, get him. And I'll be like, no, no, I'm Arab. He's like, it's even worse. (laughs) Oh, fuck. I mean, this is sad laugh, you know. It's so racist over there (laughs) that we literally need tactical white dude to talk us. Jesus. Mm. I mean, you can't even, like, when you're giving sources, everybody, nobody takes you seriously if you quote a source which, after they click on the link, it doesn't open up in English. Like everybody's like, but do, when you send them something like that, they literally tell you, but do you have a Western source? Do you have an yeah. unbiased Has source? Has New York Times yeah. or something, yeah. Quote, unquote, unbiased, quote, unquote. The Washington Post owned by Bezos, quote, unquote, un- un- <laughs> We had a whole episode on it. Yeah. Fucking unbiased does not yeah, exist. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Please continue, sorry. 
Yeah, so I was just going to say, by the way, um, uh, amongst the many, many different uh, projects that uh, Luna has, has taken part in uh, over the years, she has an amazing channel that I really highly suggest people check out. Um, she has a lot of uh, um, videos explaining uh, theory and, and, and uh, um, trying to present it in, in a more easy-to-understand way, and she's incredibly talented at that. And one thing that she's been doing recently, which I, I hope that you can speak about, is this translation project uh, that you're doing. Could you please tell the audience about that? Uh, yes, um, uh, I'm very proud of this work, actually. This is the curriculum of Marxism-Leninism. Literally, my textbook in university about the basic principles of Marxism-Leninism that we've been using this to teach millions of students every year in universities and colleges in Vietnam. The, everything, all the translation and annotation finished, and we are now like on the final step of it. We are now working on the layout, you know, the final layout of this and to try to make this is like easy to understand and not confusing at all. Uh, our edit team uh, center for communist studies include like, they include like up to 40s, I think, 40 academics all over the world about Marxism and Leninism. They really awesome and really, really smart people. They're helping us with the editing and all stuff like that. And hopefully, we're both very, very busy, but we are spending all the time that we have and we can't spend on, on this on this project. Hopefully, in the next, maybe the next 10 days, we the book can be released. Yes, and it's like the Whoa, final, so final soon. step. Yeah, That's final exciting. Step. Yes, it's like yes. Layout. <laughs> So, yes, and right after that, this is uh, the part about dialectical materialism. And then right after the book uh, released, got released, I will start working on historical materialism. I will also make simple videos to explain and then also translate the book. And after that, I will work on the political economy and also that the final is scientific socialism. It's like... This could be described as at least a half of my life's project. And it's, I, I believe wow. that it's very important because lots of people in the West mostly use self-study, Marxism, Leninism from the books of like Marx and Engels and Lenin and other people. So uh, it's very easy for you to, um, you know, to, to, to be lost in the path of self-study. That was why I, I see there are many problems in... Western Marxist Leninists. It's just because you have to do this all yourself, and all of those books they are very hard to understand and very dense, and there are lots of things the books that need to cover. So, by this curriculum of Vietnam, we can like you know what we did was just like the best team of philosophers, Marxist uh, Marxist Leninist Vietnamese philosophers, sit together along with the USSR curriculum too. We came up with the very simple version of Marxism, Leninism that everybody can understand. It's literally for 18-year-old Vietnamese kids, so it's simple and it's very basic and it is very correct and it follows exactly what the original books written by Marx, Engels, and Lenin wrote. And it's just like a very universal stuff. Like that, and th th this curriculum is yeah. This curriculum is just for Marxism, Leninism, in, and after that we have our own Ho Chi Minh thought subject, a whole book that I can translate after I finish this whole project. But it is the application 
of Marxism-Leninism into the material conditions of Vietnam. It, it is like always a couple of things. The original Marxism-Leninism, the core principles that you need to understand. And then after that, you apply it into your own society. And that's why we have Ho Chi Minh taught. And, and this is what you should do in your own society to like learn Marxism-Leninism and then apply it and then go practice and then go to back to revise of the, 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 the theory too. So, yeah. Beautiful. Um, so by the time that you guys will be listening to this, the uh, book project should be ready and should be uh, fully uh, released. Um, so you can check in the description box of any uh, platform you're using and you will find a PDF link for the free book so you can uh, take a look at it yourself. And of course, we'll also include a link for uh, a purchase link if you want a physical copy. Um, so we'll include both. Please do go check it out and of course support Luna and her uh, fantastic translation efforts. This is uh, indispensable because in English there are are very few equivalents mm. unless you want to want to trudge through like 600 plus page Soviet uh, bricks. <laughs> it's important to Otherwise, note that yeah. JT, JT approves of that book. It has a white seal of approval, so it's not just Luna's <laughs> Vietnamese propaganda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You guys can trust me. Mm. Yeah, don't listen to these people, but you know what? This is a good book right here. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, oh, fuck. All right. <sighs> And, and <laughs> with, with all this said, uh, Luna, could you please let people know where they can find you, uh, what, anything you want to shout out? Uh, uh, I'm Luna on Luna Oi on YouTube, and I'm also on Means TV. This is a short blog for Means TV, too, if you want to check it out. It is a, a workers-owned kind of alternative to Netflix. You can subscribe, go subscribe and pay whatever you can from $0 to $10 a month. And um, you can have like a totally free world of short movies and videos, video essay, live stream, weekly news, something like that is really awesome. I'm on Means TV too. So please check that out. On YouTube, on Twitch too, I am Luna Oi. And um, well, well, I mean, that's just it. If you want to you know, to listen to a different voice from the other side of the world, outside of the imperial core. You can just check out my channel. I mostly talk about everything related to Vietnam. And the thing is that like, I got lots of people, you know, they say that I only just talk good things about Vietnam. I'm very biased, blah, blah, I'm brainwashed, quote, unquote. <laughs> but the thing is that like, my point of having the channel is to fight against the anti-communist narrative running all over the mainstream media in the West. That is why I mostly focus on that kind of purpose. I focus on showing you the good parts of socialism in Vietnam. And of course, I do talk a lot about the problems that we still have because I say it so many times, Vietnam is not utopia country and we still have so many problems that we need to deal with. And I mentioned some of them in this podcast too. And if, yeah, if you want to listen to new source from non-white sphere, you know, to fight against that reactionary narrative of the Western media outlet, please check my channel out and hopefully you would enjoy it. And hopefully that you will start, you know, listen more to non-white people like me because not just me out there, there's still Hakim and Yugovnik and so many other people out there trying to speak our own mind, you know. Uh, please subscribe to my channel. Thank you so much. 
All the links uh, to her uh, YouTube channel and Twitch and Twitter and everything else will be in the description along with the links to the books. Um, so yeah, so just check those. And uh, and yes, go ahead, watch her amazing videos, watch her very fun uh, travel blogs. Um, it'll make <laughs> you want to visit Vietnam. I, I for sure want to visit Vietnam after watching them. Um, yeah, uh, and with all that said, this has been The Program. I'm Hakim. I'm JT. I'm Yugopnik. And I'm Luna. Take care, guys. Bye, guys. Bye. 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 Listen to white people. <laughs> <laughs> no!